This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday the 26th of October. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has delivered an address to the nation confirming plans for a ground invasion of Gaza, but not giving details on the timing of the operation. Mr Netanyahu has also conceded he'll have to answer for his failure to prevent the attacks after the war is finished. Hamas is holding more than 200 people captive. The hostages were snatched during October the 7th terror raids, where militants killed more than 1,400 people. Israel's bombing of Gaza continues as aid trickles into the area. More than 700 people have died during the past 24 hours. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Ashdod in southern Israel. Alison, what's Benjamin Netanyahu said in his address? I think one of the key things that... uh has, that we've taken away from this address to the nation is that he has reaffirmed that Israel is preparing for a ground invasion. Now, importantly, he won't say when that will take place or on what scale it would take place, just that it would be a decision made by his war cabinet. And I think the wording around that is quite important because over the last few days we've seen a lot of speculation about how other other world players uh, affecting the timing of this uh, ground incursion. Uh, For example, the US has been advising a delay in a ground manoeuvre because it wants more time to mediate on the release of hostages that are being held in Gaza, particularly those with dual citizenship. And we've also got reports that uh, they've asked for a delay because they want America to be able to bolster its defences across the Middle East to protect its troops that are serving in other places like Iraq and Kuwait and the UAE. Um, We've also heard the French President Emmanuel Macron come out just a few hours ago saying that uh, Israel has a right to defend itself, but he's also warned that a massive operation, a massive ground operation that endangers Palestinian civilians, in his words, would be an error for Israel. So this just gives you a bit of an idea, I think, of why the Prime Minister felt he had to make such a public address and reaffirm his intention for his troops to go into Gaza on the ground. Uh, interestingly, one of the other things to come out of this um, this public address to the nation was uh, almost his first acknowledgement in uh, the kind of role that he may have played in the October 7 attack. He said that everybody will have to answer for the attack, including me. Yeah, but he said that this will only happen after the war. So it's the first kind of acknowledgement that he may have had some responsibility for the military and government failure. Uh, And there's been a lot of commentary across Israel uh, about the role of the government leading up to this attack. Have a listen. Citizens of Israel, October 7 was a black day in our history. We'll fully investigate what happened along the southern border and in the areas surrounding Gaza. The scandal will be fully investigated. Everyone will have to give answers. Me too. But all this will happen only after the war. Alison, tell us about what's been happening in Gaza itself. The bombings continuing without pause and the hospitals, are they still functional? 
The Hamas-run Ministry of Health has released a statement saying that effectively the hospital system there has now collapsed, that it is no longer working. Uh, we have had our um, our reporters on the ground there uh, inside Shifa Hospital and some of the scenes that they're showing us, is it's just quite horrific. There are people with ventilators that are laying on the ground. It's a hospital that has capacity for about 700 people, but doctors there are telling us they have uh, 5,000 people and tens of thousands more that are sheltering there from bombardment. The major issue there is fuel. They say that they need the fuel for generators to literally keep the lights on, to literally allow them to keep operating, to keep the incubators on for more than 100 premature babies that are being kept alive in the neonatal units. And they're warning that this will become drastically urgent within 24 hours. That's our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horne. The United States president insists he's confident Australia's plan to acquire nuclear-powered submarines can be sealed despite legislative hurdles in Congress. Joe Biden made the comments after a meeting with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese at the White House. North America correspondent Jade McMillan is there. Jade, the AUKUS deal between Australia, the UK and the United States for Australia to acquire nuclear subs, it's been at the heart of these talks today. Tell us about that. Yeah, they have, Sabra. The Prime Minister has a lot on the line when it comes to the AUKUS partnership, uh, the agreement under which Australia will acquire nuclear-powered submarines. Legislation needed to progress that deal in the US Congress has stalled, partially because of concerns about American shipbuilding capacity and also because of the complex set of export controls that will have to be changed to allow the transfer of US technology. Uh, the Prime Minister's hopes of addressing a joint of Congress on this visit to Washington, what would have been a chance to speak directly to those elected members. Uh, those hopes were hampered by the chaos in the House of Representatives, and it's worth mentioning that uh, the House has only just selected a new speaker about three weeks after kicking out the last one. But what Anthony Albanese did get today from the President was a very public message urging Congress to pass that necessary legislation the fact is that I'm confident that we can get this done because you remember when we put it, the deal together, the response of Democrats and Republicans in the United States, the response around the free world was this is a very, very good thing, a very good thing. So the question is not if, but when. And I and uh, Jojo told us that they, we got a new speaker or likely have a new speaker. Uh, I hope that's true because we have to get moving. So, Jade, what else is on the Prime Minister's agenda? Well, this visit by Anthony Albanese comes, of course, amid the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. So uh, that was a topic of discussion with Joe Biden in the Oval Office. Uh, Joe Biden also said at that press conference alongside Mr Albanese that while he hadn't demanded that Israel hold off on an expected ground offensive into Gaza until hostages being held by Hamas had been released, uh, that he did tell Benjamin Netanyahu that if that is possible, 
possible, then it should be done. The relationships between both the US and Australia with China were also a major focus of these talks, particularly given Mr Albanese's upcoming visit to Beijing. Uh, and the president said that uh, Xi Jinping had raised concerns with him about AUKUS, for example. And then there were the areas where Australia and the US have agreed to work more closely. Uh, we've had announcements today on allowing American commercial space launches to take place in Australia, also further funding to improve internet access in Pacific Island nations and research partnerships on artificial intelligence. The White House portion of this trip will wrap up tonight, local time. That is when the Prime Minister will be hosted at a formal state dinner. That's our North America correspondent, Jade McMillan. The ABC can reveal key Indigenous figures wrote to West Australian Premier Roger Cook in June asking for a greater say in youth justice reforms, but were overlooked. It's now been a week since Indigenous teenager Cleveland Dodd died in hospital surrounded by his family. He'd been on remand in an isolated facility within a maximum security adult prison when he attempted suicide. It's been treated as a death in custody, the state's first in youth detention, and already the Corrective Services Commission has been stood down and replaced. Oliver Gordon reports. Details are now emerging of Cleveland Dodd's final moments. Support worker Jerry Georgiatis was assisting the family of the 16-year-old in the hospital where he died. The cries, the wails uh, were heard right throughout ICU and that sea of grief was so harrowing I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. He says it didn't need to come to this. I'm saddened by this loss. Uh, it was preventable. Cleveland Dodd was found in Casuarina Prison's Unit 18, a section of an adult jail used to house juvenile offenders. The Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre cannot. The WA government has endeavoured to improve conditions in its youth detention facilities, but Jerry Georgiatis says the efforts aren't working. The model of care that they've got in place at this time is minimalist and reductive. It does not work, Does not did not work on the first day when they started to implement it a few months ago, and hasn't worked since. And if it's not working uh, on the first day, it's never going to work. Since the tragedy, the WA government has stood down and replaced the Commissioner of Corrective Services, and suspended a staff member. Curtin University Associate Professor Hannah McGlade says more needs to be done, though. That is absolutely appropriate that the Commissioner has been dismissed, but there are others who are equally responsible. The Kroon Manang lawyer, who sits on the UN's Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, says she wrote to the Premier, Roger Cook, shortly after he came to the top job in June in a letter co-signed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar and Indigenous academic Professor Marcia Langton, she called for greater Indigenous oversight to reforms at the Banksia Hill facility. We proposed an Aboriginal committee that would be established ongoing to work with Banksia Hill to make sure that it became a safer place, to make sure that children were able to be um, supported, to be supported and to be safe. That's simply it. And you wrote this in a letter to the Premier after he got the job, and what was his response? We, we got a letter that uh, simply said there'd been um, extensive consultation to the new model of care and uh, we, we simply weren't needed. Uh, the Aboriginal consultation was done and dusted and it showed a real lack of understanding uh, of the issues. If, the, if we want the reform to be successful, then uh, we Aboriginal people with knowledge of, of culture and children 
uh, certainly have to be um, a part of this uh, way forward. And you talk about the way forward there. Is that offer to the Premier still on the table in light of what's happened? Of course it is. Of course it is on the table. It is, it is needed clearly now more than ever. Will the Premier wake up? In a statement provided to AM, a WA government spokesperson has claimed a broader Aboriginal Advisory Committee on Youth Justice has been established and its advice is being sought on changes to Banksia Hill. Oliver Gordon reporting and if you or anyone you know need help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Courts must soon consider a history of family violence when deciding on a child's best interests. It's part of a suite of changes passed in Federal Parliament last week which aim to put children at the centre of decisions. The presumption of parents having equal shared responsibility for children is being abolished. Victim survivors and family violence activists hope it'll mean better results. Beck Pridham reports, and just a note, we've distorted the voices of victims here to protect their identities. As a child, her abusive father lingering in the building, Chelsea told a family court counsellor she wanted to live with her mother, but she felt it fell on deaf ears. And then for it to just completely flip and for me to spend most of the time with my dad, it just felt like disappointing and discouraging. Chelsea says she and her sister walked on eggshells trying not to aggravate her father. We were also the only thing that he could control at that time so he still wanted to keep us in his league so that he could then kind of use us as a tool to abuse my mum. Her custody arrangement changed as she grew up and when she didn't have contact with her father it was relief but she still felt let down by the system. From 8 to 18, like 10 years, I just felt so unheard, just like commodified, objectified, dehumanised, like ashamed and just like betrayed and neglected. The presumption of equal shared parental responsibility assumes both parents have equal say in decisions affecting their child, but it's often been mistaken for equal time. Chelsea's mother, Georgia, says even though her ex-partner was found guilty of assault and she had a family violence order against him, she couldn't get sole custody of her daughters. We were literally not able to fully escape family violence. We were just stuck in this holding pattern where we weren't able to truly heal or recover because we hadn't fully extracted ourselves and regained our voices and our agency. Georgia also needed his consent to do things like get psychological support for her other daughter. Psychologists can't see children unless they have the consent of both parents. And so he just used that as a way to assert his power and control over us. Last week, the Family Law Amendment Bill passed through Federal Parliament. Family law is administered by the federal court. Under it, the presumption was repealed. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus says the reforms will put what's in the best interests of the child at the heart of the law. That includes considering a history of family violence. Of course, it's in the child's best interests to have an equal relationship with both parents, but not where there's violence. That's Women's Legal Service Tasmania's Chief Executive Yvette Seetal. Her service has been calling for reform for a decade. She says it was resulting in inappropriate arrangements where children weren't safe. It 
sees the child as like a byproduct or a pawn in the violence and it plays out like that. She's hopeful it'll reduce the number of children and mothers forced into unsafe arrangements. It'll give the court a full picture of what's actually happening in a home because past behaviours is a really strong indicator of future behaviours and it'll really take the onus too of children having to repeatedly indicate what's happening in the home. Chelsea says it could have made all the difference growing up. To not have dealt with... That, as a kid, just would have been, like, momentous to actually building my own sense of self and to just being free to live my life as a kid. That's Chelsea, a family violence survivor. Be Beck Pridham reporting there. And if you're in an abusive situation or you know someone who is, you can call 1800RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. If it's an emergency, call 000. One of the two favourites to become Indonesia's next president is plugging a massive age gap with his running mate to appeal to the nation's youth. 72-year-old Prabowo Subianto has chosen a vice president candidate half his age who just also happens to be the son of the popular outgoing leader. While some in Indonesia are aghast at the dynastic politics, others are enthusiastic about the pairing. Here's Indonesia correspondent Bill Bertels. In the hazy heat of central Jakarta, the true believers are out in force. Tens of thousands of them packing a stadium and then marching through the streets for their man, Prabowo Subianto. We're facing a very important point in the history of Indonesia, the point where we can rise to be great, to have an Indonesia that's free from poverty, from hunger, and where children will grow up happy and smart. Holding a slight lead in the polls, Prabowo is likely taking his last shot at the presidency, a role he's coveted for decades. The son of an advisor to strongman ruler Sahato, Prabowo married one of the dictator's daughters, became the head of Indonesia's special forces and was later dishonourably discharged over the disappearance of a group of pro-democracy activists. He was barred from visiting the US over human rights concerns and in more recent decades his family has built up a business empire. In amongst all that, he's had two unsuccessful runs for president. This time, though, he's running with the son of the man who beat him twice, President Joko Widodo's oldest child, Gibran Rakabuming Raka. Be calm, Pak Prabowo, he said at the campaign launch. I'm here now. At 36, Gibran isn't even old enough under Indonesia's law to run for vice president. But a court headed by his uncle approved a loophole so he could run. Supporters don't see any problem. Prabowo now uh, together with um, uh, Gibran and one from Baby Boomer and the other is uh, from Millennial. Does Gibran have enough experience, do you think, to be vice president? Uh, experience is learning. Yeah, learning by experience. Aya Fernandez is from the think tank, the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta. He says other voters might be turned off by the prospect of a new family dynasty. I think there will be an increasing discourse on uh, dynastic politics. Uh, so maybe some of uh, youth, young voters, maybe uh, rejects the ideas of uh, political dynasty. Maybe it's a bad news for Prabowo and, and Gibran. Calon Presiden 
Pak Prabowo. For all the excitement in Indonesia about the four-month campaign, talk of policy is thin on the ground. Prabowo's main rival, Ganjar Pranowo, is close in the polls. And complicated though it sounds, he has the backing of President Joko Widodo's party to run against Prabowo and the president's own son. This is Bill Bertels in Jakarta reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. We already know we've been paying a lot more for petrol, rent and electricity. But now we also know the price of those things could mean we're slapped with another interest rate rise. Today, business editor Ian Verinder on what the RBA board is likely to do when it meets on Melbourne Cup Day and why it needs to tread very carefully. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.